What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does a day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hydes. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. You guys, my book is out. I mean, it is out in the world. I cannot believe it. I have been writing it for several years and it's just mind-blowing. Birth Story, Pregnancy Guidebook and Journal is a -a one-of-a-kind discovery into your pregnancy that provides you education through storytelling. So what's it really about? In the 16 years that I have served women with every personality type, I noticed there was a huge disconnect between what my clients were craving for childbirth education in a book and the books that were actually available on the market. There seemed to be unlimited resources if you are looking for an unmedicated birth or a natural birth or a home birth. But there just weren't a lot of resources for my clients who were part of the 92% of women birthing in a hospital and very much open to medical interventions like an epidural, nitrous oxide, and opioid medications. So I wrote that book to fill the gap for you. Week by week throughout your pregnancy, you will engage with material meant to educate and empower you as you plan for your own birth story, hospital, medicated, unmedicated, or something in between. You are welcomed each week with a postcard from the womb, which is an adorable note from your baby about their miraculous development, as well as the amazing changes occurring within you. Then you are invited to use an uplifting birth affirmation and to respond to an introspective journaling prompt to document your feelings, curiosities, and wonders every single week. With room to memorialize your own birth story, this book will become a memory keeper and a legacy gift for your baby. You are encouraged to read one of my favorite birth stories each week filled with childbirth education, tidbits, and explanations of important medical terms and procedures. These are real-life accounts shared with permission from the births that I've attended during my career as a doula, and I gave you a great mix. In the 42-week guide to your pregnancy and 42 birth stories, seven of them end in cesarean section. About half are unmedicated and the other half are medicated deliveries. This is a judgment-free book. So take what you need from each element and leave the rest. Okay, are you ready to buy? I would love for you to go to birthstory.com and buy it directly from me. But I totally get it if you're an Amazon girl. You can head to amazon.com and just type in birthstorypregnancy 
and the book should pop up. I'll deliver it straight to your doorstep. And I would venture to say that you might be an audiobook kind of woman because you're listening to a podcast. So if you would prefer to listen to this book, then I have recorded it and it is available for download at audible.com or on your Audible app. Thank you for being part of the birth story community. I'm so excited for you to have this book in your hand once you've purchased it and it has arrived. I hope that you will give me your thoughts and feedback and don't forget to take a selfie with your book and post it on Instagram and tag at birthstorypodcast. Dr. Kendra, welcome to the Birth Story Podcast. Thank Thank you, you, Heidi, for having me. I'm excited. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you for being here. I'm just, it's incredible what you're doing, what your life purpose is, that that you're a new mom. So today, everyone that's listening, we have Dr. Kendra on. And Kendra, tell us all about who you are, what you're doing, what your mission is, and then we're going to hear all about your birth story. And yeah, exactly what it's like when you're an obstetrician and then you become... (laughs) pregnant and, you know, go to have your own baby. So um, tell us a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So hi, everybody. Um, My name is Dr. Kendra Segura, and I am a physician that basically had a career change later in life. So I was an older medical student, and I did my training in upstate New York, Rochester, New York. But before I got into medicine and before I became an obstetrician gynecologist, I was working um, in public health. I was an epidemiologist working for Los Angeles County, and so I've always had a passion for preventive care, preventive health. Due to personal reasons, I was diagnosed with endometriosis at age 19, and we had no idea what that word meant. You know, the way I was raised, you know, we didn't go to the gynecologist unless you were having sex, and I wasn't having sex. So there was no need to go to the gynecologist. In my family, we never spoke about periods, and my parents didn't know that, you know, when a, when a young woman starts her period, that's probably a good time to have an introduction to the OBGYN. So my passion comes from personal experiences with illness, and And um, my spark for medicine came when I was working as an epidemiologist, and I realized that I love to work with patients and people. And so I did a crazy thing, and I dared to change my career. And here I am, passionate about women's health. And I also um, have a fertility story because I was diagnosed with endometriosis. And just briefly, endometriosis, it's just when your period kind of retrogrades back into your system and you have endometrial tissue, which is the tissue that creates your period. And it causes pain. So a lot of women that with chronic pelvic pain, you know, endometriosis is something that a healthcare provider would be thinking of. And no one really knows why a woman gets endometriosis. It's just a theory that we're thinking retrograde menstruation. But definitely um, this kind of leads me to where I am today. And I went through IVF, three years of that with me and my husband. And I also had fibroids, you know, later, you know, being older. And a lot of women develop fibroids in your 30s. Again, no one knows why people get fibroids. And, you know, just just to um, 
you know, I, I like to always explain to people when I say these random words, because I don't like to take it for granted that just because we hear about fibroids that we know what they are. In simple terms, it's just fibroids are smooth muscle tumor. People hear tumor, oh my God, but it's benign. It's not cancerous. And nobody knows why women get it when they're when they get older. So some people say it's diet, genetic. So much research into women's health needs to be done, more of it. And so definitely, Heidi, I'm glad that you, you know, have this platform. I'm excited to tell my story. And, you know, being a patient, being on the other side of, you know, the fertility journey, being on the other side of, you know, having, depending on good doctors, depending on good OR staff, because I was a high-risk pregnancy. So I'm ready to get into it. Oh my goodness. Okay. I, I'm so thankful for you, but my mind is also like, I have a thousand questions for you. And the first thing I want to say is thank you so much for stopping and taking the time to define things like endometriosis and fibroids. And I promise the audience, as we continue with these podcasts, we stop and pause and we define because what I'm finding is that all of these young women, Dr. Kendra, the, the, 12 and older are listening to podcasts. And I have 16, 17 and 18 year olds who are emailing me every single day saying, I don't have a baby yet. I'm not, you know, there, but they're listening to this podcast for education because maybe they're like you and they're in a family where their parents Mm -hmm. aren't talking and they're seeking, oh, I'm really curious. Or maybe they have a friend who's pregnant. Um, So anyway, so it's really important that we stop in some of these terms that we kind of typically gloss over that we make sure that we're defining. Okay, so let me start with, so you're practicing and you you just mentioned a little bit about this fertility journey, but like back me up. How old are you right now? Definitely. So I am 40 years old. You're 40. Okay. I'm 40 years old. And so I got, and, and I think this is a very important to, you know, touch upon, you know, age and getting married or even women who aren't married and you want to, you know, uh, go down the fertility road because the trend in America, you know, women that come to my office and they want to get pregnant, they're in their mid to late thirties. You know, women, we are going on to higher education. We are able to kind of weigh our options more, that pressure of, you know, when my parents got married, my mom was probably 20 years old, I think. So, you know, times are changing and, you know, with, with the change and the trend of women coming in and, and they're getting, you know, pregnant older and also, we hear the term now, it's becoming popular, it's geriatric pregnancy. It sounds awful, but geriatric meaning for um, OB purposes is 35 years and older. So in my practice, I practice in Southern California, I'm seeing more women coming in for geriatric pregnancies, if you will. And I wish there was a better term for that, I but do it's simply you know, 35 is still young, you know, still young to me. So so um, yeah, definitely that's the trend that's going on now. Yeah. So when you started thinking about, like you said that you went to medical school later and, you know, your career it was a primary focus in your relationship. So when did you start thinking about, okay, I'm, I want to have a baby? A great question. You know, I got married at age 33. And I, I got married to my husband, who's also a physician. Um, and, you know, 
I didn't have time to really date. So you kind of date who's around, you know, so just being so career driven. And, and again, I changed my career, you know, so it was like, really, I had to make a decision. Like, okay, Kendra, so you're not going to get married, you know, early and you're going to like push off having babies. So I did know that, but I didn't know, you know, how late I was going to be pushing it. And, and I always knew because I got diagnosed at age 19 with endometriosis. I always knew in the back, way in the back of my mind, my gynecologist told me, you know, you might have problems, you know, having babies, you know, and as a 19 year old, you know, at that time I was a tennis player. I played college tennis boyfriends and, you know, babies was the last thing I was thinking about, but I never did forget that he told me that I might have problems getting pregnant. So, you know, keep that in mind. And I, and I older now, and I look back and he was my gynecologist for many, 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 many years. You know, he just wanted me to kind of, you know, have that in my mind, not to put me down, but just to, to prepare me. You know, and I'm glad he did because, you know, as I went into medicine, you know, I I always, you know, told a guy that, you know, I have endometriosis. And so that might mean I might have trouble getting pregnant. And for me, you know, me being in medical school, me, you know, being, you know, even in public health, I was always kind of you know, diligent and letting people know. And it's not something that everybody has to do. You know, if you have endometriosis, oh my God, you know, you meet a guy and you, hi, my name is Kendra, I have endometriosis. No, but just for me, any guy that I was serious with, <laughs> you know, I wanted him to kind of know that, hey, you know, maybe we won't be having, you know, maybe I might, can't be able to have children or maybe I just might have one or two, but just, it was my personal decision. So anyway, so what I want to hear next is, okay, because you're a physician, did you just say, okay, I have endometriosis and this might be a problem. So like, let's just go get IVF. Or did you try to get pregnant naturally first? Right. Okay. So, um, so age 33, I got married. I was still an OBGYN resident and my husband was internal medicine. And, you know, at that point, you know, I stopped birth control because birth control is a great way to suppress endometrial tissue. And so I stayed on that. You know, I, I was a good girl. I listened to my gynecologist and I stayed on that for many years. And so when I got married, you know, I stopped birth control. And so when I stopped my birth control for about three years, that is when me and my husband were trying to conceive naturally. And unfortunately, through that process, you know, me being in my 30s, that's when I developed fibroids. And so do you see how for my fertility journey, it, it, it was starting to look bleak. Yeah. You know, myself with the diagnosis of endometriosis, I'm in my 30s. Um, I was a, a stressed out resident because, you know, unfortunately, stress does suppress ovulation. So I just have this scroll of, you know, differentials here to say that, hey, Kendra, you know, you might not be able to have children. So with IV, with um, endometriosis, fibroids, um, I was a very busy um, after three years, um, I decided to, you know, that maybe I need to start looking into taking care of my fibers. Cause at that point I moved from the East coast, I moved to California. This is where, um, California is originally where I'm from. 
And I'm getting ready to start, you know, my new dream job. And I basically had heavy bleeding and I ignored it for another two years, allowing the fibroids to grow even more. So, you know, not on birth control, trying to conceive, you know, I understand denial. A lot of, a lot of times people, you know, would say, Hey, how could a woman, you know, let her fibroids grow to, you know, a size of a a melon or, you know, even watermelon size, you know? And I know when we're talking about it, Heidi, it seems like common sense, go to the doctor, you know, you've been having this problem for how long, but denial, you know, we can't underestimate the power of denial. It's very strong. And I have a strong denial and, and I've seen it. And that's why I'm so big on coming on platforms like your, like yours, Heidi, and, and big on, you know, educating patients to take care of themselves because I know I have to fight, you know, practical things. Like a lot of us can't miss work. You know, there's a lot of pressure that women have, you know, wearing multiple hats, being a lot of us are bread are the only breadwinner in the home and you can't take off or insurance, you know, or, you know, just not wanting to face the journey of your fertility. And Heidi, I found that that was my issue. I was the OBGYN that I gave diagnosis of infertility and sub fertility, but I wasn't ready to face my own. And that was the probably the reason why it took me quite a while to get help for my heavy bleeding, which later resulted in me having what they call a myomectomy, which is this removal of the fibroids. And so that was another ding against, you know, this, this hope or dream of having um, a baby, you know, carrying my own baby, because now my uterus was, is, is, was violated with surgical instruments and removal of fibroids and causing scar tissue. So as the years went on, Things got stacked up against me. The odds were against me in having, you know, carrying my child or having my own child because now, how old am I then? I'm 36. Now we're 37. So I was at that point, my own doctor had to say, hey, Kendra, you and Hobart better wake up. You know, you better face your fertility and it's now or never. So that led to another decision I had to make was basically I had to stop working and and start working part time and and really kind of make a decision and dedicate, hey, I'm going to dedicate this next year to my fertility. And that was not an easy decision. And a lot of women, unfortunately, don't have that choice. And so that I, I so yeah, the last couple of years have been a whirlwind of huge decision making and hope. I see your next book being called Face Your Fertility <laughs> to tell the story Absolutely. and to encourage and to encourage women. And the reason I want to interject right here is because it is so important when I'm talking to my dual clients or my friends or on this platform or anything. In, in where I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, the obstetricians will tell you to try for a year and come see me if you are not pregnant in a year. And I am fighting very hard against that. I'm like, if you are not pregnant in six months, you need to face your fertility. You need to go back to the doctor. You need to start talking about, okay, you know, what is your diet? What is your stress level? You know, let's get an ultrasound if you have insurance. Let's find out what's going on in the environment. But, you know, to not have any pregnancy at all when you're Mm -hmm. ovulating 
for mm-hmm. six months. And again, I'm not an obstetrician, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just see people waiting too long, you know? So, and so in your what case, you're doing, Heidi, well, what you're doing is so, so, so just to get out the medical definitions, just so, you know, women can be clear because a lot of times, and the reason why I'm on the internet is because, you know, I welcome, you know, women, you know, sending me, you know, DMs, private messages. And what, and what a lot of private messages I find is that the women are going to the doctors. They just want to double check to say, hey, you know, I know you're not my doctor, but this is what's going on. And I encourage that, Heidi, because, you know, asking questions is key. And what you're doing is you're saying, hey, a a girl who is younger than 35 years of age with no GYN history, meaning no diagnoses of fibroids, of endometriosis, of polycystic ovarian syndrome, a woman who is healthy with no diagnoses, and she... That woman has one year to try to get pregnant because in one year, 80% of healthy women younger than 35 can get pregnant. And the other percentage takes a year and a half. So if you're 35 and older, it's six months. But what you're saying, and I encourage Heidi, is that you're saying, hey, young woman, young, healthy woman, younger than 35, if you're not pregnant in six months, go to the doctor because this is where questions, you can ask questions. This is where maybe you do have painful periods when we sit and take time and have a conversation. Maybe you're not getting your period every month. Maybe you're you're spotting after sex or you're spotting in between periods. So going to the doctor, the gynecologist after six months, you know, being younger than 35, that's just you gathering information and you might let the physician together. You guys can uncover, hey, wait a minute, maybe you do have a diagnosis of PCOS and we don't know it yet. So you know what? I encourage that. And so that's why I kind of like to say, this is why doctors say that. And maybe this is why you should be an advocate for yourself, because if you don't want to lose time, you know, a year is a long time to then find out something, you have something going on that you probably could have fixed if you had more doctor visits. So I applaud you for that, Heidi. Yeah. And another thing too, is that at least with my doula clients, a significant portion of them have a male factor infertility. And so we spend all of this time as women thinking it's my responsibility to get pregnant and it's my body. And and in your case, it seems to be, it was a, a female factor um, right. fertility, but you know, let's not gloss over that, you know, the shape of the sperm, the amount of the sperm, you know, the motility of the sperm, that there are lots of... you know why we can't gloss over it? You're right, because it's 30% male factor. And 30% is not zero. So that's why we can't gloss over it. And um, in addition, it is, you know, things like maybe the male, you know, maybe he has no sperm issues. But guess what, Heidi? If a man isn't with a good diet, if he doesn't have, if he's drinking a lot, you know, now THC marijuana is now legal. So, you know, we're, you know, being, you know, working in the hospital, everybody seems like has a positive um, drug test for THC. So a lot of young people don't even know, you know, that, hey, you know, if you're drinking a lot, if you're smoking weed or doing drugs, um, if you're not taking your vitamins, that maybe periodically your sperm count can be low or 
or the shape can be weird or, or different. So even though generally the male could be healthy, but if he's not living that lifestyle, you know, his sperm, you know, some men have dead sperm, you know, because because they drink so much. So a lot of these things people don't know. And so so if you are a woman that's this is not say infertile, most of us are sub fertile and your partner isn't living the healthiest lifestyle, it makes it all the harder. So definitely, you know, like I said, 30% is not zero. So, so for sure, if it's taking you months, like, you know, six months and you're with the same partner, you know, maybe both of you guys should go to the doctor. I always encourage, you know, the partners, the males to go to their primary care doctor because a semen analysis, you know, it doesn't hurt and it tells you a lot and it kind of gives you a reality check. The diet, you know, the, our lifestyle does attribute to having good sperm, having good eggs. Hey, it's Heidi. I'm interrupting the podcast to let you know about a free resource that I've created for you at birthstory.com. All you have to do is go to birthstory.com and then click the tab that says the workbook. Once you put your email address in, an entire resource library of all of my secret sauces are available to you for free as my thank you for listening to the Birth Story podcast and being part of this community. At birthstory.com, under the workbook, you will find a birth plan template, articles on circumcision, delayed cord clamping, flipping a breech baby, packing your hospital bag, acupressure points, placenta encapsulation, and so much more. There are over 20 free articles ready for you to download at birthstory.com. Now let's get back to this amazing episode. So Kendra, through all of this, you and your husband decided to go down the IVF journey. And how long did it or how many transfers did it take for you to get pregnant via IVF? Okay, so my uh, journey with heart, being on a fertility treatment, reproductive technology, wasn't wasn't straightforward because, again, you know, I am a physician, and you know, people kind of sometimes women don't understand how you could put your career ahead of things, but when you sacrifice like I did, and when you're have when you have a strong denial like I do, and it was really hard for me to face my fertility for me myself. I delayed everything. So I I got a little depressed when I realized that I had to have my fibroids removed. And I was kind of forced into that because I had heavy bleeding. And I'll just tell a quick little story. And just, and I'm telling this and I'm being transparent because, you know, I want to identify with people out there. And I understand that, you know, when you are just refusing to get help, I, I, I totally get it because I too am that patient. So I was doing a procedure on a woman um, in the office and I was trying to sample her um, endometrium because she had abnormal uterine bleeding. That's what we call it. And um, this woman, you know, she didn't get help for a very long time. And, she, and it was just a bloody procedure. Blood was everywhere. And my nurse, you know, after at the end of the procedure, my nurse was, you know, um, there helping me. And I was thinking, geez, you know, Kendra, you know, there's, this is really bloody. And my nurse, you know, gently and kindly said, Dr. Segura, you're bleeding. And so what happened is that I was bleeding on the procedure, uh, uh, seat, 
and bleeding through my scrubs. So the patient was bleeding. I was bleeding. And I then went on to have like, you know, intense abdominal pain. That's called dysmenorrhea is when you have painful periods and a passing large size clots. I literally felt like I wanted to pass out. And so after that day, I just changed my scrub. I still didn't go home. I continued that day was an in-office procedure day for me. And so I should have went home, but I said, you know what, let me change my scrubs and let me continue the day. It wasn't until I got home with my husband where he, you know, said, you don't look good. You look like you need a blood transfusion. And my husband said, Kendra, if you don't get help now, you're going to end up getting help when you're in, I have to take you to the ER and you have to get a blood transfusion and then you have to have surgery. So you choose, you either have unscheduled surgery or you have a game plan, you get your doctor and you have a game plan. So that was my huge wake up call because unscheduled surgery is never a position that you want to be in. And as a physician on the other side of that, you know, I do unscheduled surgeries all the time, but it's not the best. It's not the optimal situation to be in. So at that point, me and my husband decided to freeze our eggs, freeze, freeze my eggs. And then basically this is, you know, probably be another talk, but, um, as far as fertility goes, it's, um, embryos have a better chance of surviving versus eggs alone. So I'm fortunate enough to already have a husband. So we decided to freeze embryos at that point. And the reason why is because I know that after I have my fibroids removed, I have to let my uterus heal you know, for at least six months, you should let your uterus heal before you begin any fertility treatments. And so that's what we ended up doing. We ended up freezing um, our embryos and I had my myomectomy. And then after that, you know, I healed for probably a year. I let myself heal for a year because work got in the way, you know, life got in the way. And then we did one cycle of IVF and just to know, you know, a lot of times people, oh, IVF, especially with the trend of a lot of movie stars getting old, getting pregnant older, you know, in their fifties, late forties, having twins. And now with genetic um, editing going on, people are, you know, they know you can choose the sex. So that is basically, I, I have to fight that because people are misled because the way the media portrays it is something easy. And so a lot of women are coming in and opting to do fertility treatment because they want to start choosing, you know, what kind of baby they want, what sex they want and twins or not. And so that is a huge, I want to say misnomer, you know, for lack of a better term, because that is like, no, 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 you don't choose this. And so basically kind of got off track there because I'm so passionate. No, it's a really good though, because, you know, what I know about IVF is that you have to take hormones, the, the pH balance in the uterus. I mean, like there, it has to be this perfect environment before this transfer. It is not an easy thing. It's not easy emotionally. It's not easy physically. There's no guarantee that the transfer or transfers, if you transfer multiple embryos will be successful. Exactly. Exactly. And so as healthcare providers, we we have to fight what's in pop culture. 
you know, and so, so yeah. I, that's why I spend a little bit more time because my passion is education. I spend a little bit more time with patients, educating them because they go back to their friends and they, they can tell their friends. So, you know, you spend time and you educate one person, they can go and educate, you know, many more, you know, um, that, no, that, that women that wouldn't typically come see the doctor, but just to let you know how, you know, the ultimate physician is God because the stats for me. So the statistic for a successful IVF outcome, birth, live birth is 33% in a woman and a man with no GYN history and being, you know, younger than 35, the woman. So for me, let's, let's review the odds that were stacked up against me. At the time I was 39 years old, I have my diagnosis of endometriosis. I still have fibroids because, you know, even though you have removal, there's still some the doctor can't get to fibroids. And I probably had some scarring due to the surgery. So with all that, you know, it, it's a miracle, you know, it's a miracle with prayer, you know, that I could carry my baby and, you know, and of course that the, the, the transplant took, you know, so that's why, you know, I'm just so grateful and I want to share my story. And the whole point is that I tried and, and me as a physician and me with my coworkers, I have a lot of OBGYN coworkers, you know, we really thought, you know, surrogacy at the best because I had 16 fibroids removed from my uterus. So at that point, remember, you know, it's hard to turn off my doctor hat. What uterus is left at that point, you know? And so, um, I, I just tried and I'm glad that I kind of went through the steps. It took a lot of courage because again, being who I am, it was just, I was scared to death to now face my own fertility journey. It was okay for me with my white coat, telling other women, you know, what to do. But when it came to me, I had a lot of fear and my fear made me procrastinate and made me not think of it. And I kept busy, you know, because I didn't want to face it, but it, it may, I was made to face it. And it was a reality, a hard talk from my, my doctor, my fertility, a doctor that woke me up. That told you that those odds were much lower than that 33% also. Eggs. Oh, let's, yes. Let's explain one thing really quick to anybody who's listening is that when you like what the implication of uterine scar tissue is, because one of the things I think is a misconception when we talk about an IVF transfer is, could you just talk a little bit about the fact that it's a transfer and we're not like picking the place that it implants? And, right, right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So share about that a little bit. Yes. So basically what happens and the re reason why we say transplant or implant, you know, it, it, the, these terms. So, so what it exactly is, is when you, um, for myself in my situation, so the doctor, the fertility specialist, um, they took the egg and the sperm and they made it embryo. And so that develops in a lab. And so um, I had a frozen transfer. So that means they froze the babies. And when I was ready, after I healed from my surgery, then you start hormones to plan for the transfer. And so basically, it's something that you do in the office. It's almost like um, the setup of a pap smear. Okay, so it's just, you know, because people think like, you know, it's some elaborate, you know, display. No, it's very simple. It's just, you know, you're in the stirrups and the, and it's almost like a syringe, you know, a turkey a syringe that, you know, Thanksgiving is around the corner. So that's on my mind. But it's similar to having a syringe and the doctor will then go and try to, you know, put, put, 
the embryo as far into what we're thinking, you know, through the cervix into the uterus. And the hope is that the embryo will implant in a good place, a good place meaning away from the cervix. And so a lot of times, so, so, so for me, my, if you're healthy, young, no issues, the first IVF transfer, that should be a 33% success rate of a live birth. So again, with all my issues, you just keep knocking that down and it's, you know, less than 10%, you know, to say the least. So again, you're hoping that, that the embryo would be healthy enough to, to implant in the uterus versus just kind of just escape, you know, because our, our uterus contracts after that and kind of gets rid of any bacteria. And you just pray to God that the embryo isn't in that bacteria that the uterus is getting rid of. So interesting. So how many embryos did you implant? Two. Okay. We did two. So one didn't take. And my heart, heart is my son's name. He's four months. And he, he took, he, he's a tough, he's a tough guy. He's a tough little dude. I love it. Well, let's, I want to hear all about Hart's birth story. So why don't you like, let's jump ahead a little bit because you, yeah, got a couple you, minutes. Yeah, yeah, you find out that you're pregnant and then I want to know, like, how did you know you were in labor as an OBGYN? Like, how did you know? It's different when you're talking to your patients, but like, how did yeah, you absolutely. know you were in labor? <laughs> did you get induced? Did you go naturally? You know, did you schedule your C-section? I have no idea how this is about to end. Yeah. So, yes. Okay. So jumping ahead. So I had to had a scheduled C-section okay. um, because I had my uh, fibroid surgery. So I had my uh, C-section pretty, pretty late, uh, 38 weeks and five days. So you can go from anywhere, you know, depending on the extent of the surgery from 36 weeks to 38 weeks. So I went to 38 and five due to work scheduling. You know, again, you know, I'm, I'm always pushing the limit. God bless my OBGYN because I was not the easiest patient. So since I had my C-section scheduled pretty late and I was working after I got out of the danger zones, I did have some vaginal bleeding early on in the pregnancy. I had a healthy pregnancy um, all the way up until I delivered. So I was so I was working. So I started working again. So I was actually in what we call latent labor, which is early labor for four days before I actually went in for my C-section. And me having that strong denial factor, I didn't go to the hospital. You know, I should have went to the hospital. So if everyone listening, don't do what Dr. Segura did, go to the hospital. So I was contracting and I was having what they call back labor. So all I had, I had, very, I had painful lower back pain and I had strong rectal pain. So those were contractions and I have such a high pain tolerance. I was still nesting. I was running errands with my husband, but I was in a, a foul mood. I was in a bad mood for four days. And so people would ask me, you know, are you happy that you're having a baby? And I was like, I don't know. I didn't realize that I was having these contractions, but I was feeling the rectal pressure probably every, every four minutes at its worst. But I, it didn't click that, Kendra, these are contractions. Or maybe... Maybe I'm smarter than I think. Maybe I knew, but I just didn't want to go unscheduled. I think subconsciously, I didn't want another physician doing my C-section. So if my water didn't break, I was just going to ride it out. And it was painful. And when I got to the hospital, they put me on the monitor. I was contracting every three minutes. Did they check your cervix? 
No, I didn't okay. dare have them check. I just said, hey, let's I just bet go you were, in. I bet you were at least four go. centimeters. <laughs> oh my God. I was like for four days. And now looking back, it was painful. Heidi, that wow. was painful. So that's why I say I don't recommend any woman doing that, especially when you had prior surgery on the uterus. Go to the hospital. So my baby, he was he was a big boy. He was eight pounds, five ounces. Oh my goodness, 30, at 38 yeah, five. and five. Wow. Yeah, he was a big boy. And so he was naughty. He was transverse presentation. Oh, so we, I figured when that. you said back labor, I was like, that is not good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he was transverse and he was back down. So that's the hardest presentation for an OBGYN to deliver the baby because you you don't really have anything to grab. And so my me and my doctor, we knew the presentation beforehand. And again, so here I go, I'm in the operating room and I realize that I'm really depending on the OR staff. And I'm the OBGYN that I always go and I, I hold my patient's hand when they're getting their spinal. I'm with them because you want a familiar face. You know, uh, in the OR, it's it, it's a whole bunch of people. No one, you know, the patient doesn't know anybody, but you know your doctor. So I tend to like to hold their hand, look at me, you know, and kind of get them, talk to them because it gets overwhelming. And so for me being a patient, you know, my doctor, you know, he did come there. We were together. And, you know, the OR staff was very kind. And guess what, Heidi? I got my spinal and literally I wanted to just have a panic attack. And and this has happened to me. I have had patients touch, you know, the blue sheet, which is, you know, the sterile sheets that we have in the OR. I've had patients, you know, have a panic attack. And here I go in my mind. I literally, you know, wanted to lose it because I didn't like not feeling my legs. And I hear this all the time. So I just felt like everything that I've heard as an OBGYN, I was feeling all of it. And so my anesthesiologist was so kind. This is when I'm getting reminded the anesthesiologist is very important in a C-section because they're on the other side of that blue sheet with you. And he calmed me down. Um, this hospital was so kind. They allowed my husband and my sister to be in the um, OR um, room with me. And I was out of it, Heidi, but I knew every step that my OBGYN and the assistant, I knew every step, meaning when they start the skin incision, when they're, you know, at the, you know, at my fat, getting down to my fascia, getting to my uterus. I knew the point when they were trying to get my baby out. And Heidi, this is where it turned into a soap opera or, you know, I guess for a split second, a nightmare, if you will. It took four minutes for them to get my baby's head out. Yeah, because Four of that position. Minutes. Wow. And, and and I have to tell you the normal because you won't be able to appreciate four minutes unless people know the normal. So really, um, when the physician cuts at the uterus, it takes probably 30 to 45 seconds, the minute at the most, to get the baby out. This took four minutes. Now, were they talking to you? Were they like telling you or was everybody you, quiet? Everyone was quiet and every surgeon has their own style. But, you know, I love to talk. So I'm I'm the assistant and the surgeon. I talk. I talk things out, especially after it hits a minute. When, it, when it's taking longer than a minute, this is when most people will talk things out. Like say, hey, you know, because um, at, at this point, remember I told you my baby was transverse. So the 
surgeon has to make the decision at the time, am I going to make this baby breach or I'm going to turn turn head down? So this is the decision you make once you kind of get in there to see what's going on. And so I, there, it was complete silence. But again, I couldn't even talk myself because of all the medication. But I was with it. I literally, when it got to two minutes, I wanted to reach. I have a long arm. I wanted to reach over and get him out. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So this was nerve wracking. So he, so finally my doctor does a great job. He gets, he gets the baby out and there's no cry. I mean, how many times have I delivered babies and we love to hear that cry, you know, and everybody takes a big sigh of relief. There was no cry. Um, my baby ended up having to get intubated. They called code white, which is for the pediatric team to come on in to resuscitate. Oh, um, yeah. So this was something. And I just, I was extremely calm. And I said one prayer, I said, God, I know you didn't bring me this far for my baby to get cerebral palsy if he lives. Do you know what I mean? Like in my mind, because I was very calm and the OR staff, the nurses were so good at updating me, updating me. And lo and behold, at eight minutes, lo and behold, my baby took his first huge breath. Was he still attached to the placenta? No, it, it, this is immediately you're rushed over. And immediately. Okay. The pediatrician. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it comes and, and starts taking over. And, you know, miraculously, he didn't have to go to the neonatal ICU. He stayed with wow. me. And I've never in my clinical practice have seen that. So, you know, I really believe this baby is heaven sent. And I thank the OR staff. I thank my doctors. I was heavily dependent and relying on them. I couldn't do a thing. Okay. I have a question for you though. Yep. Yep. Something that I don't understand that people listening might also not understand. Why, when you have a cesarean section like that, why can you not wait to cut the cord until after the placenta is delivered also so that the baby's still getting oxygen from the placenta? Like, does that make sense? Like medically, like why do we have to disconnect right away? That's what I want to know. Because when the baby, at at that point, when you cut into the uterus, the oxygen saturation status is already being compromised to the baby. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because you're, you're already interrupting it. So... If everything is healthy, you know, what what we've, you know, it's continuing to change as far as when you cut the cord. So some people in some facilities will say one minute if everything's all good. Okay. It's changed so much within the last three years as far as full-term babies getting the extra oxygen, the red blood cells. Um, when they say, hey, Dr. Segura, you can't cut the cord until it's 60 seconds or 30 seconds. So that just changed to, you know, pre preterm. You know what I mean? So they yeah. keep changing it. So I don't want to speak on that because the minute I do, they're going to change the rule again. But but when you're having issues, it, there's no time to make sure the baby gets more red blood cells. You have to bring the baby directly to the pediatrician to when you're having, when it's a high risk, when, when there's something going on with the baby. Okay. That makes sense then. I was just, um, I was just curious, you know, if that, mm-hmm. if it would have helped or not helped. So Dr. Kendra, I am so happy for you that your sweet little heart came out perfect. And even after that, 
kind of scary moment for you that you have a thriving baby and God did bring you so far and God did give you this gift and you took a less than 10% and you bet on yourself. And I'm so proud of you. Thank you for sharing your beautiful story today with us. And will you please come back on the podcast and we'll do an expert talk with Dr. Kendra and we'll- Oh, for sure. Yeah, let's pull our audiences and see what people want to talk about. But I loved hearing your story. Thank you for sharing what it's like to go through a fertility, a, a planned cesarean, you know, what it's like to be an OBGYN in an operating room as a patient. I've learned so much and I appreciate all that you are. Thank you, Dr. Kendra. And, and, and Heidi, I do just want to say my, in a nutshell, my learning point as a patient and a physician my learning point is that God is the ultimate physician. And as a patient, you know, you pray for competent expert people around you, but also you pray for, you know, whatever you believe in, you pray for that. Um, if it's, a, you know, whatever your belief is, you pray for the people that are helping you, you know, you pray for them too. And as a doctor, I realized that, you know, I can only do so much. You know, I can only, you know, I don't have the power to, you know, make, to, to prevent bad outcomes, but what I can do is do my best to be prepared for them. And so I, so this whole birthing experience me as a patient, it's kind of like really consolidating, you know, for me, you know, what I'm here for, I'm here to help people and usher them to good health, you know, with making informed educated decisions. And as a patient, you know, I learned to pray for my staff, pray for the people that are, is helping me and my son. So thank you for having me, Heidi, and I will be happy to come back. Excellent. Now, where do we find you on Instagram and on yeah, Facebook? So Instagram and, and Instagram is my most active form because I, you know, especially I take about three days at most to answer questions. So Instagram handle is at Dr. Kendra MD. And that's the same for my Facebook. So everything is, you know, Dr. Kendra MD. And that's also um, for my website as well. Perfect. We'll send you some new followers. Thank you so much, Dr. Kendra. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much, Heidi. Talk Mm -hmm. to you soon. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Birth Story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up, plan, and prepare for the birth you want, no matter what that looks like.